tonight I thought I'd talk about suffering and the end of suffering with an emphasis on the end. Sort of a standing joke um, that Buddhists, maybe a shadow of Buddhism is this obsession with dukkha. And uh, recently, maybe a couple years ago, Wes Nisker, who's one of the teachers at Spirit Rock, wrote an article about people being firsters. So in terms of the Four Noble Truths, obsessed with the First Noble Truth and maybe a little forgetful that there are three other Noble Truths. (laughs) And you can pick this up sometimes, like maybe Sunday when you're talking with each other and sharing your war stories of knee pain and boredom and other things that come up. So I thought it would be nice to begin by taking a look at the 33 synonyms of Nibbana. These are, you know, (laughs) the Buddha didn't talk a lot about liberation or enlightenment because you'll notice as we hear these words, at least in some of us will be the thought, I want that. (laughs) What do I have to do to get that? So the list is, or some of the lists, the unconditioned, the cessation of greed, hate, and delusion, the uninclined, the taintless, the truth, the other shore, the subtle, the very difficult to see, the unaging, the stable, the undisintegrating, the unmanifest, the unproliferated, the peaceful, the deathless, the sublime, the auspicious, the secure, the destruction of craving, the wonderful, the amazing, the unailing, the unailing state, the unafflicted, dispassion, purity, freedom, non-attachment, the island, the shelter, the refuge, the destruction and the path leading, I'm sorry, the destination and the path leading to the destination. And at other times in the suttas, the discourses, He used the phrase, the immaculate, the joyful, utter peace, the wonderful, the pure, the safe refuge. So that sounds nice. (laughs) And remembering, of course, that all of it, you know, the hell and the heaven, the dukkha and the freedom from dukkha. There's really no other place for that to be but here and now. So we wanna, the whole practice really is predicated on this timelessness of the practice, like not doing it later, not lamenting, having not done it earlier. Some of us start our practice, you know, maybe when we're 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 and we see younger people and we can spend a long time thinking, gosh, I wish I had started my practice when I was younger, instead of doing the practice in the moment we have. So we hear these synonyms of Nibbana, the cessation of all that ails, that all that burdens the heart, but The reality is we don't really know, we can't take the first step until we understand 
What is it that we're trying to resolve? What's the problem that we're trying to resolve? So we look at dukkha not because we're morbid, but because it gives, it sort of is the barometer or is the, um, sort of sets us right in terms of that experience of release. There's no understanding release without understanding how the heart is bound up. There's a funny story I heard from a Zen teacher once about the Buddha and a farmer. It's not a true story as far as I know, but it's funny and it's useful. It's a good teaching story. So a farmer takes a long time to track down the Buddha because the Buddha wanders from place to place and eventually catches up with the Buddha, gets an audience, and when it's his turn to talk, he explains how difficult it is being a farmer, dealing with the weather, dealing with his partner and his kids and the farm animals and the thises and the thats, and on and on like this, and then asks the Buddha for help. And he's really expecting that the Buddha is going to be able to help him. And the Buddha says, well, you know, everybody has 83 problems and there's really nothing I can do about that. <laughs> so people were pretty, dis or this farmer rather was pretty disappointed and uh, kind of huffed and puffed a little and said like, why would anybody come to see you? You know, and started walking away. And just before he was out of earshot, the Buddha said, I can help you with 83, your 83 problems, but I might be able to help you with your 84th problem. That sort of got the farmer's attention. So he stopped and he turned around and said, so what's my 84th problem? And the Buddha said, well, your 84th problem is you don't like having 83 problems. <laughs> so this is sort of why we look at dukkha, right? Because we understand that release we get from the Buddha resolving our 84th problem only by being really connected, having 83 problems, all the different ways we don't want things to be the way that they are. It's too hot, it's too cool, I want the retreat to go on, I wanted it to be over on Wednesday. <laughs> I was on uh, Saida Utejaniya's retreat in May at Spirit Rock it's really wonderful to be there. And uh, he is a very light being, really just a joy to be around, even beyond the teachings that he offers, but just how he is. And he can be playful at times. So once in the small group um, that met with him, maybe 15 of us or so, he asked this question and there were a lot of teachers in the group. So we all sort of wanted to get the right answer. He said, is Buddhism an optimistic or pessimistic religion or teaching? And you know, we're all, he, he's sort of looking at us, waiting for somebody to be brave enough to say what they think is the true answer. And it's, we all kind of knew it was a setup, but still. <laughs> so obviously, you know, he waited until maybe half of the group had sort of weighed in on it you know, pessimistic, optimistic, whatever, both, <laughs> covering your bets. And then he goes, it's realistic. And I thought, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Why didn't I think of that? 
So it's realistic, and being realistic, the teachings of the Buddha, we start from where we are, and we look at our heart, we look at the present moment experience here, in the body, in the mind, in the heart, and the most relevant thing, when we're not distracted, when we're not overly superficial, somewhat settled, somewhat sincere, the most relevant thing is to whatever degree this heart right now, not theoretically, but this heart right now is bound up tight or weighed down or free from that being bound up tight, weighed down. That's what's actually relevant. It's more relevant than why it's bound up. I didn't get a meal today or I'm anxious about my livelihood or I don't know about my relationship or something really nice happened to me today. So whatever the reason is, the more relevant fact is the heart feels like this. So we start with that quality of the heart. It's relevant. I'll tell a story a little bit uh, from my own background about how dukkha gave some clarity to my life and really got me on the path. So in the early, I graduated from college in 1980 and I was always inquisitive and sort of spiritually inquisitive, but um, hadn't really dug in with any practice at that time. And I had a certain confidence that I could figure things out, that the resolution to uncertainty and to like how to be happy, it was an analytical problem to solve through deep contemplation, thinking. And, uh, and I did that. I thought deeply about things and I felt pretty good about how I did that. had a lot of confidence in how I thought things through that uh, bothered other people who I was having arguments with. <laughs> <laughs> And then um, a couple years after graduating, I broke up with a woman that I had been going out with for a number of years. And, uh, and it, that combined with sort of being in this place of not knowing what I was going to do with myself. When I graduated, I knew I had to pay off my student loan, so I took the highest paying job I could. And I was working for a management consulting firm in Washington, D.C. And then after a few years, I was pretty close to paying off my loans, and now I had to figure out what I wanted to do. And, uh, and then we broke up. And then with that uncertainty, like what to do, it made me a little bit more reflective, and the issue of death became like big in my mind. I was really obsessed for about, I don't know, six or seven months reading books. One book in particular, The Denial of Death by Ernst Becker, where he... Um, describes our existence as mostly um, an attempt to cover up the anxiety around mortality. You know, so to raise kids or to be successful in a job or to really invest in certain hobbies. There are all these superficial attempts to keep busy. I mean, just to say it simply, to keep busy enough so that we're distracted from the uneasy feeling of our mortality. It's a really powerful book for me and just sort of sent me deeper and deeper 
And uh, at the time, one of my best friends was working for a Yes bookstore in Washington, D.C. It was one of those first spiritual bookstores, really popular place in Georgetown. I'm not sure if it still exists, but so I had access to a lot of good books from, you know, the yogic and Buddhist traditions and all other religious traditions. And so I was reading a lot. And I came across a book on Ramana Maharshi, who was a great Indian saint who died in the early 50s, maybe 1950. And uh, described in that book a time when he was a teenager and he was interested in death. And uh, he decided one day just to lie down and he lay there and contemplated um, death. I'm not exactly sure how he did it, but it seemed like a really good idea. And I had no formal meditation training, didn't know what I was doing, but I thought, oh, I'll do that, I'm interested, and I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna really bring my mind to the issue of non-existence. Like, I wanna look at it square in the face. And so I was doing that, and uh, my mind got really settled, and it was really interesting, and. I was there with that very um, pervasive but subtle uneasy feeling um, of like not knowing or uncertainty or insecurity. As I contemplated, you know, just using my imagination, imagining not being anymore. Um, and at some point, what arose in the mind is what we've been doing all week. Some version of the mind recognizing that it was only that feeling being known and there was nothing else, just that feeling being known. And so the sort of understanding that came out of that moment was whatever it is, death or mortality, it doesn't refer back to anybody. Like, who's that a problem for? I didn't really understand what had happened, but it really shook me up. I was sort of disoriented for a number of days and uh, knew something had happened but didn't really understand what happened. But just a, a shift in view about understanding something about the mind, just the very beginnings, of course. But that whole uh, movement really was driven from uh, just the unpleasantness, the dukkha of not knowing what I was supposed to do with life, what was important, what is this matter of life and death? And it changed my life. From that point on, I knew what I was supposed to do, like develop meditation. So I left management consulting. I thought I'd do an easy thing. So I'd have my summers free to practice and I became a school teacher, <laughs> which was so much harder than working in business. <laughs> So the other thing about starting with dukkha is it provides, a, it, it provides the proper motivation for our practice. You know, it really grounds us in the reality because the heart, however uneasy or burdened or numb or restless, filled with craving, filled with hate, whatever that is, it's here and now. And it, it really, brings up, it can at least, with the proper attitude, bring up the appropriate motivation for practice, which is, I mentioned, and other people have mentioned, I care about this life. 
the fact that it isn't easy being a human being. I mean, this is something we can very directly, immediately recognize. It isn't easy being a human being. It isn't easy having this sensitive mind, this sensitive heart, being touched all the time, moment by moment, by what's coming and going. It isn't easy. This can tenderize the heart and we feel this very trustworthy motivation of compassion. I wanna do something about this. The Buddha says this, in fact, he says that when we're, when we're are touched by dukkha, when we feel dukkha, no dukkha, it either causes us to lament, you know, beating our breasts, wailing, right? Or we sign up for a retreat at IMS, <laughs> right? Or we search, that's the word he used, right? So when suffering either causes us to unproductively wail and lament and blame somebody else for our suffering, or we start looking around, does anybody know anything about this human experience of suffering? Does anybody have anything clear to say about it? Right? That's what I did after that experience. It just one of those great synchronistic things. I had uh, just left one job. I was supposed to start another job, another management consulting job, and I had arranged three months off. And that little opening happened right at the beginning of those three months. So I had these three months, I was going to be backpacking in Alaska and the West Coast, mostly by myself. And uh, so I had all this time. And every time I got done with a trip, I'd find the nearest bookstore and find more books on meditation. And then put them on my already heavy backpack and then read them. And it was like this retreat just happened to fit. And then I started my new job and three weeks in I said, I have to go. (laughs) (laughs) This isn't what I'm supposed to be doing. So this motivation of compassion. And then we hear these teachings from the Buddha and one of the things that immediately makes us begin to trust, like want to listen a little bit more, want to dig a little bit more, is he's speaking our language because he says, there is dukkha. There is, like life isn't quite workable. Even when we have really privileged, good conditions as some of us do, still it's difficult. It's unpredictable, it's insecure and uncertain. And even when things are really good, we want them better or we want it to last, or we want, we can be on a nice retreat, beautiful retreat, like the one we're on, and be wanting to be on another retreat. I bet that's come up in a lot of people's minds. Or on vacation, thinking about our next vacation. So, we begin to trust this path because the Buddha talks about experience as a human being in a way that we immediately get. Yeah, it is difficult at times. It is challenging and beautiful at times too. But as Deborah mentioned when she talked about the three characteristics, there's a kind of dukkha of pleasant experience because even if we're not consciously aware, unconsciously at least, we know it will change. The pleasant circumstances will change. 
And so the heart remains bound up. It doesn't really fully release, relax. The other thing that's so trustworthy for me about the way the Buddha puts out the path is he talks about it being good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. And you know, the whole path, I mean, one way to talk about it is the release of attachment, the release of identifying with with what is coming and going. And you see, as soon as we start, we immediately get that release of being less attached than we were a moment ago. And on this retreat, how many moments were we, did we notice the mind, the heart attached, clinging, and then there was enough clarity and the clarity supported the letting go of that clinging, that attachment. And then right there was the flavor of freedom, right? That's what the Buddha says, that this path has one taste, one unmistakable taste, the taste of freedom or the taste of this release. And sometimes it's a release we didn't even know was there the moment before, like you're sitting in the kitchen and then the refrigerator buzzing go stops. The moment before, you didn't even know it was buzzing. But then it goes off and it's like, oh, that feels so nice that it's done. So sometimes the release of dukkha is like that. We didn't even know that our shoulders were up by the ears. And then we release and we're so happy momentarily. But still, we've learned something about this squeeze of the heart and the release of the heart. The Buddha really um, emphasized and kept it really clean, the teachings. It's about suffering and the end of suffering. He made this point over and over again. Many of you have heard the famous simile of the handful of leaves where he asks the monks that were with him, what's more, the leaves in the forest are those in my hand? And they said, well, the leaves in the forest, there's a great number of those and just a few in your hands. And the Buddha said, good. (laughs) Because in the same way, what I have come to understand is vast because I have this mind that's very clear. But what I teach is really just a little, just a few things. I teach that there is dukkha, there's a cause, it does cease, it can cease, and there's a way, there's a path. Why do I teach that? Because it works, because it's pragmatic, because it actually addresses what we care about. All the other metaphysical stuff, that doesn't, that doesn't affect suffering and the end of suffering. So it's so interesting when you read the teachings of the Buddha, how skillfully he avoided being metaphysical. It changed in later schools of Buddhism to some degree. But when you read the Pali Canon or the early teachings of the Buddha, he just avoided metaphysical questions. Where did this all start? Is there a God or not? Or he just, uh, 
kept directing it to, like sometimes he would change, someone asked him a question, he'd either ignore them if they were so off base, but if they were somewhat close, he would tell them the question they should be asking. I think you want to be asking this question, just to help. This is from Ajahn Sumedho. He has a chapter on the Four Noble Truths. He's a very well-known Western monk. He was born in Seattle, but he's was an abbot in England for many years in the Thai forest tradition. So he asks, and what is it that Buddhas know that unenlightened beings don't know? Right? What do enlightened Buddhas know that we don't know? They know that whatever arises passes away and is not self. That's Buddha wisdom. It sounds simple, doesn't it? It doesn't sound like very much but it's everything. Because everything we can know, perceive, conceive, and experience through the senses, everything we identify with as ourselves, as our ego, as me and mine, has this pattern of change. It begins and ends and is not self. What then is yourself? If I'm not the body or the mind, then what am I? The Buddha left it up to you to find out what you are because he knew how it would affect you if someone told you. If I told you, would you believe me or disbelieve me? To know directly, that knowing has to come from direct experience, through mindfulness and through wisdom. And this is the way of the Buddhas. Because we do, I notice myself, I'm sure you notice too, we want somebody to tell us. It's this sort of childhood imprint most of us have of wanting to be saved. And so the sort of more grown-up version is, just tell me what to do so I get the right results, you know. But we can't say much more than, can you be mindful? Can you recognize what the mind is knowing? Can that be okay? Can you relax with that? Can, you, can the heart accept that? And if it can't, can you notice that? Can you be okay with that, the not accepting of it? So we're really turning toward our experience, which also makes this path so, so trustworthy. Ajahn Chah, who was Ajahn Sumedho's teacher, says, do everything with a mind that lets go. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will have complete peace. So this is how we gain confidence, not thinking I'll have a heart that's released later when I have a good set or when I finally figure out what I'm supposed to be doing or, but we notice incrementally how the heart gets bound up and how the heart releases. One of the most poignant things about being on retreat for me has been, you know, inevitably, even if you try not to, just being in this environment we become really sensitized, especially now, day eight, day seven, whatever it is. Um, 
And then when in that really sensitive state, we can't help but see like when my mind gets caught in something, wants to figure something out, and sometimes it's really silly what we want to figure out. You know, like we're trying to figure out who somebody is, you know, are they this, are they that? Or I had a good friend who was a serious practitioner and he was on retreat. We were both on retreat with Steve and Kamala, Steve Armstrong and Kamala Masters over here, back when they were doing a retreat in the 90s in Minnesota. And uh, I rode back with Paul and uh, he told me that during the retreat for several days, there was this very strong obsession of having to figure out the top 20 movies of all time ranked according to the how good it was. So not just the top 20, but number one. And uh, I mean, this is a serious practitioner, somebody with a good practice, but sometimes these things blow in and the mind gets seduced for a while, right? And then at some point, wisdom and mindfulness resurfaces. And if we're fortunate, we'll recognize the effect of that thinking, that obsessing. And we'll notice, oh, it feels like this, the bound up heart, the heart that was attached to solving this problem feels like this. This is the lawful fruit, the karmic fruit of having been worrying for that period of time or obsessing or planning or, it feels like this. It's not about judging ourselves for having been thinking, but just wanting to understand cause and effect, the lawful effect. And in the same way, when you have moments of continuity, seeing objects arise, they're known, they go, another object arises and is known and it passes away. And there's some steadiness, some continuity. And you'll probably notice the natural lawful karmic fruit, which is the body, mind, heart gets lighter more pleasant, more bright, more workable, nimble, all good things. And it's not like you need hours of continuity. You can literally detect the loosening up and releasing, brightening of the mind with just several moments of continuity. In the same way that as the mind begins to get caught, you can feel the karmic effect as, you, as the mind is starting to get attached, right? This is the great um, advantage of having a sensitive mind. It's not easy being sensitive because everything seems big. You know, even somebody looking at you a particular way can feel really like a, a big experience. But the advantage is we can very Uh, sensitively feel the effect of attachment or identification and the effect of non-attachment, non-identification, the continuity of mindful awareness. And it teaches us the way, the path. Attachment hurts, non-attachment is happiness, the release of the heart. Kamala mentioned the other night about the beings that were trying to convince the Buddha 
that there are others out there with little dust in their eyes and that he should do his best to teach. And after being convinced that they were right, that he should, that it might be useful to teach, helpful uh, to teach, then he uttered this phrase, it said, wide open are the gates to the deathless, right? The deathless is a, another one of those synonyms uh, for the heart's sure release, the unshakable release of the heart. So wide open are the gates to the deathless. Let those who can listen bring forth their faith. Right? Those who can listen, those who know how to be present, let them come with their sincere, wholehearted intention to practice. Right? That's what faith, confidence, that this makes sense. That's what it does. It gives us energy to show up to the next moment. Okay, now this is being known. At our center in Minneapolis, we decided to use um, a, a pair of footprints as the graphic for our center. It's a traditional um, image used to represent the Buddhist teachings. They didn't, way back in the early centuries after the time of the Buddha, they didn't have statues. It was later when there was um, the Greek influence from Alexander the Great who invaded that part of the world. And they, the Greeks, had their statues. So the, the people of northern India thought, well, we should have statues too. And they started to make statues to represent the Buddha. But before that, they used the wheel, representing the wheel of the Dhamma, like that the Buddha shared what he had come to understand, and he set that wheel in motion. Like those words, sometimes we call that the Dhamma, or the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, that it sets something in motion. And clearly that's true because whatever those words were, they're landing right here in the small town in Massachusetts and probably deeply affecting our lives, those teachings. And the other image they used were these footprints. And the Buddha talked about this path that he articulated as not being his path, but a path that had been articulated in the past before him. And he likened it to a, an old, beautiful city that had gone uh, covered over with vines and trees and and that now his articulation of this path was somebody clearing the roads out and so that the roads and the paths could be used by others. This ancient path. And another beautiful image of this path uh, that I love from one of the discourses where the Buddha describes um, the role of our teachers, like the Buddha as a teacher of ours, as the mother cow that when the herd is crossing a, a big river, you know, the bigger, the older steers or cows, they go first, bulls, they go first. And then once they're across, they do this lowing, this sort of low moaning sound and encouraging the calves, you know, you can do it. You got to do it. You got to jump in and you can do it. And that's a little bit, these teachings, they don't carry us across. They just are they're meant to be encouraging. 
First by pointing out, and this really speaks to, um, you know, how the Buddha started this, this teaching on the Four Noble Truths, is basically saying, honeys, you know, friends, your approach, our conditioned habit to be happy, the way we conditionally try to be happy, it doesn't work. Look, pay attention carefully. All the ways you're trying to be happy are limited. Some are more neurotic and some are less neurotic. Some are relatively wholesome ways to be happy. But all the sort of conditioned ways to be happy are limited. You can ask people, like you might imagine that people who are staff at IMS, that they must have it made. You know, working at such a great place and such a beautiful place. Clearly, certainly they don't have any suffering. <laughs> and then, then we'll think, gosh, if only I could get a job at a place like this, all my problems would go away. So it'd be nice. It, I often thought that we would learn a lot if we could interview everybody who has what we think we want. And like a really in-depth interview that would, like we just sort of shadow them for a couple of weeks, you know, asking questions when we want and just, just to fly on the wall. And it would burn out so many ideas of where we think happiness is. If we could just observe that billionaire or that person with a certain body or that person with living in a certain place or with a certain job or surrounded that person surrounded by friends and to realize as nice as it might be those different conditions that they haven't resolved the same issue that we haven't resolved suffering and the end of suffering so the buddha begins this talk uh talking about the middle way which is uh I find very useful because he, he's talking about what we, all of us, have some sense of. He's talking about what's not the way. So for, in the Buddha's uh, teaching, the middle way is not either of two extremes. So one extreme, and you've heard this a lot, is the attachment to sense pleasure desiring sense pleasures, wanting sense pleasures, wanting nice things, wanting pleasant experience, wanting a good sit, wanting a good rest, wanting eggs again for breakfast, or whatever it might be. So those sense experiences are in fact nice, they're pleasant. The Buddha said, if there weren't the happiness of gratification, beings would not get attached. <laughs> But because there is a pleasantness of gratification, beings get attached. If there wasn't suffering in life, disappointment in life, then beings wouldn't be repelled by life. I'm out of here. I'm ready to be done with this. This is enough, right? But because there is misery, there are drawbacks to sense experience, beings like you and me, we do become dispassionate. We do want things to be done. And then he says, if there were no escape, no ultimate release of this heart, there wouldn't be any wise being saying there is a release. 
So we talked about this middle way as not indulging in our desires, but also not rejecting sense experiences as bad, right? Sort of the ascetic, taking asceticism to an extreme. Like if only I didn't see, if only I didn't hear pretty sounds, if only I didn't, you know, if only I weren't sensitive. It's basically like saying, if only I didn't exist, then I'd be happy. (laughs) That's when you think about asceticism and take it to its logical conclusion, it's, it's almost that way. So, and the Buddha directly practiced ascetic practices. And before he started his spiritual path, he had a really, really nice life. So he understood that neither of those extremes lead to happiness. And he said, there's a middle way. So <clears throat> this is useful for us even if we don't know what that middle way is, we can, and this is a lot what we learn on the retreat, we start to look at the fleetingness of a meal. Because, you know, meals stand out here as a, for most people, an enjoyable time. The room's a little crowded and we don't get to see out right now, but still the food is pretty good. And uh, it's offered in such a beautiful way But it's really interesting to notice the fleetingness of that actually pleasant experience. So not to deny that it's pleasant, but to notice how limited that pleasant experience is. Because it isn't long before we're looking forward to the next meal. If it was really satisfying, it should last for a while, but it doesn't. Even if you have a good sit, some of you have had really peaceful sits, And then the effect of that isn't that, now I don't need a peaceful sit, it's just the opposite. I want that again, I want more of that. So we can start to see that retreating from life, a sort of ascetic instinct, like if only I didn't have to deal with food, if only I didn't have to deal with relationships, I think I'm gonna keep noble silence for the rest of my life. And I'm gonna keep staring at the ground. And it just things are gonna work so much better when I get back. <laughs> I'll become a hermit. I'm sure my kids will understand. <laughs> so we can, we can move down the path by getting clear that the two extremes actually don't deliver meaningful happiness. Because some of the reason we continue down those paths is we just don't know a better way. So we may even have some understanding that food is a limited sense experience, but we still go there expecting it to be fulfilling because we don't know what else to do. We do this a lot with entertainments, at least I seem to. You know, knowing how limited that will be to read the news I still want to check to see if something, you know, at the New York Times webpage will make my life meaningful for a while, you know, even though I've checked it several times already, but you know, something could be breaking right now (laughs) that will make me, um, I don't know, feel good about myself or feel good or just 
not feel bad. But we don't. We don't. We may feel absorbed in it for a while, but then we always come back. So one of the maturings that happen is we don't want to be surprised by dukkha, the sort of uneasiness. We just as soon keep track of it as opposed to getting lost into some experience and then, oh yeah, here's my heart again. Here's this life again. And so we start to befriend the uneasiness of the heart and eventually we realize it's our teacher because it leads down this set of insights that the Buddha described. So there are 12 insights that just naturally arise as we give up seeking true happiness through sense experience and seeking true happiness by rejecting sense experience, thinking sense experience is bad. So we're not wasting our time as much in those two avenues and just allows, which allows us to be more mindful because the only thing really left if we're not seeking happiness through sense experience, we're not avoiding happiness through sense experience though, or rejecting sense experience, the only thing that's left is to understand the sense experiences that are arising, right? So we receive what comes our way, we receive the experiences that we can receive, doing our best not to harm others, and all the while we're understanding, it's like collecting good data. As Ajahn Sumedho says, and the Buddha says, said before him, experiences arise and pass away and are not self. Conditions come and go and are not self. They're nature. It's the nature of objects of experience, thoughts, sights, emotions, touches, it's the nature of experience to come and go as nature, as this impersonal flow of one thing following the next. So we take that as a teacher and a series of insights arise. And I'll just go through them. And this is all part of this first talk the Buddha gave on the Four Noble Truths. Some of these are already familiar because we've talked about them quite a bit on the retreat. So the first insight, remember each one is an insight. There is dukkha. Like so when we notice that struggle, that resistance, that clinging, that attachment, just to recognize that for what it is. So we're seeing it in and of itself. Clinging is like this. Struggling is like this. And that insight allows the next insight, which is it's relevant. The fact that my mind is struggling, is resistant, is not something to bat away, or sometimes we're like run back to the breath. But with this insight, we realize, no, actually, it's relevant that my mind is struggling. Like we're sitting, we're feeling some knee pain or back pain, and then there's the hating of it, right? So there's the throbbing, and then in the mind is the hating, the throbbing and maybe feeling betrayed by our body and, you know, endless proliferation around why this shouldn't be happening to me, 
what I can do about it. And to realize that this is dukkha and it's relevant, it's a teacher. Until the third insight arises, which, that, which is this dukkha has been understood, meaning we're a good student. We're not doing anything to make it come and go. We're simply receiving the experience as it is. So these are the three. Now we've been doing a lot of these three insights this retreat. There are moments where you see there's dukkha. You see that it's relevant. You're not running. You're not turning away from it. You're doing your best to open, see it clearly, give it permission, say yes to it, because it is this way now. And then there are moments then when you're not resisting, you're not denying it at all. And that sets in motion the next three insights. There's a cause. We live in a lawful universe. So when there's stress, there are causes for that stress. So this, the mind is sort of entering this place of wisdom where it is understanding how things are unfolding lawfully. Things are unfolding lawfully. The hating of the pain in my back is arising lawfully. There are causes and conditions. So then the mind starts to get inter interested. There is a cause. It's the attachment, right? It's attachment to desire, the desire for this stuff, this pain to go away. There's that identification. It's not the pain itself that is the cause for suffering. It's the identification. It's the personalizing the pain and the desire, personalizing the desire to get rid of the pain that is the cause for suffering. So the mind sees that and it sees it in it, the next insight is it understands this should be abandoned. This cause of suffering should be abandoned. This is an insight, so it's not me gonna get rid of that. It's, it's the mind understanding that it's not helpful. And this is a place of real patience. Because when we see the dukkha, when we see that we're hating the back pain, and we know it's not skillful, we know that it's amplifying the weight, the contraction in the heart, right? Making things tight. We could hate the hatred, but we know better. So we practice being patient, knowing that it's unskillful. We're patiently seeing that it's unskillful, recognizing that it's unskillful until letting go happens, until the hating of the back pain ceases. That's why there's such a important place of patience and practice. Sometimes we're working with back pain, sometimes it's restlessness, sometimes it's boredom, sometimes it's strong desire for good things to happen. But we need to see the suffering it's one of my Zen teachers said, be right in the downtown of suffering, right in the middle of it, right? Then you know you're not in a hurry. You're actually seeing it for what it is because you can't see dukkha and be trying to get rid of it at the same time. 
And we see the cause, the attachment, the identification. We see that it sh- it's unskillful, it should be abandoned. And with patience, like everything else, it ceases. And if we're mindful in that moment of cessation, the ending of grasping, then we know that experience of non-grasping, which is the third noble truth. There is an end to suffering. There is the cessation of grasping. It should be realized. I think this for me, it needs to be generalized and integrated so that the mind can never forget that non-clinging, non-attachment is the way. And then an arhat, someone who's fully awake says, can say, have the insight, it has been fully realized. But for us, we're just having little glimpses when we're in a moment and the heart is bound up and struggling in some way and we realize the first six insights, there is dukkha, it's relevant, it's not irrelevant, right in the middle of it, right in the downtown of it, fearless, patient. And then the mind clarifies and we see, oh, I should have guessed, it's attachment, here it is. The mind is attached, it's identified, it's taking something personally. This should be abandoned. And that's the tricky area where we wanna do the abandoning. We wanna get in there with our sword and make the bad stuff go away, which just makes more bad stuff because we're personalizing it. So we practice being patient until we see this natural cessation of suffering. The heart was bound and now it unbinds. The heart was tight and it releases. And, but now we're seeing it very clearly. And the more clearly, the more we intuit the third noble truth, the cessation of suffering, the flavor, the taste of liberation. We start to intuit it or have a sense of it. And each time we have a sense of what it is, Ajahn Chah calls this the reality of non-grasping. Every time we intuit that reality of non-grasping, the path, the Eightfold Path, becomes a little clearer in our mind. Oh, literally it's like that, like a, oh, this is what this life is all about. And the way the Buddha describes this is purifying our actions, purifying our mind and purifying our view. So we're just paying attention to our whole life with wisdom and mindfulness. And when we pay attention with wisdom and mindfulness, then our actions, our speech, how we relate to community, to the world, to individuals, to our own life, body and mind, it gets purified. And we start to have the happiness of harmony. And we bring this wise mindfulness to the activity of the mind itself. And the mindfulness purifies it which creates more and more steadiness and calm. And we bring this awareness to the view, the most subtle aspect of the mind. Self-view, for example, taking things personally. Or the beginnings of right view, starting to see that everything's lawful. Everything is an unfolding process. Everything's nature, 
right? That's in the direction of right view. And then we end with what Ajahn Sumedho says, the Buddhas know that we don't know, that all things come and go and are, and are not self. Not as an idea, of course, but as a, a lived reality. This is actually how experience is experienced. Objects are coming and going and are not self, their nature. Doesn't mean they're not nothing, it just means that they're nature. So we purify our whole life, but how to do that depends on some clarity that we get when we intuit non-grasping. We intuit the rightness, the liberation of non-grasping, non-attachment. It's only then that we understand what the path, like a better glimpse, a better understanding of what the path is. Because when my mind is not understanding the actual experience of non-grasping, then the path looks like getting that cabin on the south shore of Lake Superior and uh, having enough money in the bank that I don't have any financial insecurity and having all my Dharma books there, you know, and only having to give one Dharma talk a week, <laughs> you know, and not having to travel. Right? I mean, it's like we set this, that's, that seems to be the path to happiness, right? But it actually ends up being that's a path of suffering, kind of creating an idea that we're attached to. And then everything in comparison is a threat to that idea that this is happiness. So, but when we understand that happiness is this reality of non-grasping, then it completely shifts how we see the path of our life. Oh, if I purify my actions and I purify my mind and I purify my view with awareness, wisdom, mindfulness, then it will be harder and harder to forget the reality of non-grasping. Because now my path is understood as remembering the reality of non-grasping. How can I keep this in mind? That's our path. So I'll just end by reading a short passage from the Buddha and from one of our elders in this tradition, Sylvia Borstein, who's just a wonderful teacher. So Sylvia first, she says, everything is always breathtakingly the only way it can be. My heart resting in equanimity can respond with compassion. And then the Buddha, he says, Practitioners, I will teach you about the one who has an auspicious day. Listen and pay close attention. I will speak. As you say, venerable sir, the monks replied. The Buddha said, you shouldn't chase after the past or place expectations on the future. What is past is left behind. The future is as yet unreached. Whatever quality is present, you clearly see right there, right there. 
not taken in, unshaken, that's how you develop the heart, ardently doing what should be done today. For who knows, tomorrow, death. There's no bargaining with mortality. Whoever lives thus ardently, heedfully, both day and night, has truly had an auspicious day. So says the peaceful sage. So let's just sit for a moment and be okay about letting go of the words. Time for walking practice now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.